it's important to keep it in perspective that it's not terrible, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, Rwanda in 94. Right. It's not Congo in 2008. You know, it's not, it's not Salvador in 81, but it's not, uh, it's, it's much worse than it was seven months ago. The country was bad. The country was in rough shape in February. Yeah. But at least, at very least, people were, more people were working, mm-hmm. for better or worse. Now it's, it's, it's just, you're just talking about entire, you're talking about funding certain industries that are still laying off a huge amount of employees, regardless of how much they're being subsidized by the taxpayer. And you talk about other industries that are getting no attention at all, and they're just being left to die. And in the meantime, you have uh, unemployment numbers, and now these people are just unemployable. Like, you have unemployment, the ranks of the unemployed swelling, and there's no jobs for them. Mm-hmm. So you're in, we're, we're, in the, we're, in, we're in a very strange 1931 kind of situation. Or maybe, like, maybe, maybe winter of 1930, like, the country's just getting used to this. Like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, bread lines? Okay, yeah. You're doing it's- bread lines now? Okay. And the Dust Bowl yeah. has yet to hit. You know, I mean, the Dust Bowl obviously made things a lot worse for a lot more people. But um, it's, it's, there's this unreality to it as well. Like, you still have the stock market doing fairly well. <laughs> and there's absolutely no reason why it should be. Unless, unless sure, it this is, is what, it's held up by magic beans or something, because it makes no sense. It's been two weeks since we recorded, and mm-hmm. it feels like it's been a year elapsed in that time. Like, yeah. it's, I, I keep thinking this about how, how is writing or what we write about going to change because of this? Like, the last time we had a, a, like a huge pandemic like this was the Spanish flu of the 19. 19- uh, of the first world war but we also had the first world war to contend with so i was trying to think of like all the literature that i could have read that dealt with the spanish flu and i come up with nothing right like i get all quiet on the western front i get all these war books but this is different right like this is like like uh, there was a podcast i listened to that said um now that we've had a president like trump how are you going to cast in movies another president for just like a generic president anymore someone who's capable who gets caught up in whatever Uh, like it's and i thought that was an interesting point like how you can't just think oh we're gonna put in a white old white dude in the white house in this movie or in this story and just competent because Mm -hmm. we've proven that to be impossible not impossible like like not an inevitable thing that would happen you know, right. like now we got this. And I, I think that's a, it's an interesting thing, interesting topic. Like what is art? We joked about it last week or the last time we episode, just put masks on everybody. But it's it's yeah. not obviously that simple. Well, it's interesting that that in the 1994 movie Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford as uh, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, mm. it had a. A one of the most one of the bo- most bone-chilling, bo- bone-chillingly nihilistic portrayals of an American president mm. that I have seen. It was so. Yeah. What made it so bone-chilling was that it was so real. It didn't feel like a cartoon character. This president only cared about his image. He didn't care that he had. He was. He basically, you know, subverted international law, subverted American law, and he was sending the CIA on this campaign of unlicensed murder mm-hmm. and, and rampage to try to cover up his tracks uh, and have his corrupt friend who was murdered on the boat, which kind of sets the plot off. It's such a ramsh. It's such a rambling movie. It's a, it's a world well done movie, but it's the mm-hmm. plot is so intricate. There's so many characters that he doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he utters two very memorable lines in that movie. And it's wonderful. I forget the, the actor who portrayed him is a vet, was a veteran actor. I believe he's still alive, but he was what part of that ensemble cast of The Thing, 
John Carpenter, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, he's he's a very good actor. And what I love is that he grew out his eyebrows, so he's very yeah. stately looking, blonde, stately, in shape, but his eyebrows are kind of wild. So it's like every time they close up on his face, you get the sense that there's this bestiality just below the surface. That's interesting. I, I noticed that about yeah. his eyebrows too, but I, I didn't think anything of it. I just thought they were kind of... Because I, oh, I, I watched that movie in the last two weeks, oddly enough, for the first time, now that you mentioned it. No kidding. Yeah. What did you think of it? Um, I think Harrison Ford is probably the most boring Jack Ryan there is. Ever, but he nailed it. Yeah. Jack Ryan's boring. Yeah, right? no, he's, he's super boring. Unlikely hero. Mm. Yeah, he, which is such an interesting, like, because you expect like a James Bond or like a, like, <laughs> like, like a, like an action star, and he's just this guy, this normal Joe who, who's obviously not a normal person. He's like a doctor. He's got a doctorate, and he works for the CIA. He's like the deputy, uh, mm. secretary general. But um, yeah, I I thought it was that that line that really stuck out to me was. Um, when the president says it has never happened to my friend before, it's in the very beginning that shows yeah. the cronyism and like, yeah, like, cause they had the analyst there who said, uh, they do this all the time, you know, which is about a murder on a ship. And he's like, well, it hasn't happened to my friend before, which is, right. it shows the human aspect, I guess, of, and the conniving, the manipulation that goes on after that. It's a good movie. I really liked it. Uh, John Milius, man. John Milius is a good writer. I know. What's amazing is that Milius was so prescient about the kinds of presidents we would get. Mm. You know, I think that was a caricature maybe of Bill Clinton. Maybe. Although Clinton had just entered office. and Mm. It's likely that it's a direct caricature of him. But look at Trump is just, I mean, it's clear now. Now that the New York Times got hold of his tax returns. Oh, my God. (laughs) That that Trump is using the office to 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 fill his to, his coffers again, like it's if it wasn't obvious before, like why he was broke, he was right. broke. He's, he's using the office of the president to enrich himself well, directly, like yeah, like right, let's go to Mar-a-Lago for this function, and you know let's do that's how the G seven at my house, <laughs> yeah, at my place. Let's go to yeah. And it's at a hotel that I my name is on or whatever. Um, and it's just this president in clear and present danger is mm. obviously he's murderous. So it's, it's it's not as far as I know, Trump hasn't had anyone killed. But um, it's it's uh, say what you want about Trump. I don't think he's done that yet. But anyway, but still, it's this idea that there is a narcissistic uh, individual who indulges in cronyism to get ahead in life, and he uses the resources of the American state, of the state, to pursue private whims, to pursue mm. solipsistic goals, and act chagrined whenever you whenever you challenge him on it. Like, I'm the president of the United States! You know, like this, this, this monstrous kind of, you don't agree with me, you're a fucker, fuck you. <laughs> You're not, I don't, I'm not your president. Go vote for somebody else, bro. I fucking, you know what I mean? This mm. idea that if you're not, it's this bone chilling kind of humorless, you know, co-opting, capturing of the American executive for personal gain. And how dare you question me on it? How mm. dare you? I'm president. I've been clothed as, as, mm. To quote Daniel Day Lewis's Lincoln, with immense power, you know, except rather than try to put an end to slavery, this president is trying to make four hundred million dollars or whatever it is right. he owes. And then it's, it's it's just but that's the, the interesting. Like you have to now go beyond that already over the top characterization of the president that we saw in Clear and Present Danger. Mm. You got to go even beyond that now. You know, it's it's just this. It's Brazil. It's it's Terry Gilliam's Brazil. I mean, it's it just doesn't work. It's just it's just and it's just starting to really not like the stress of inertia in government. How our government has not governed for at least eight years 
when 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 John Boehner and Mitch McConnell just decided like this this black president's doing nothing else. Fuck him. Uh-huh. He wants to ram Affordable Care Act down our throats when he has a supermajority. Fuck him. He's never governing again. He'll have to rule by executive order. We're blocking every goddamn thing he does, which is what they did. Yeah. And then so starting around there, you know, and then leading up to the present day where Trump is not interested in governing, at least Obama was interested in governing. Obama, uh, Trump is not interested in governing. He's interested in in picking our pockets. He doesn't even like, do they go through a school? Like most politicians, I guess, learn the ropes as they go up the the ranks, right? Of like, you know, local councilmen, uh, House, Senate, whatever, right? He just kind of got plopped in the middle. Like they just went, there you go, you're president. Yeah. Govern. Right. You get vetted by in any industry, in any uh-huh. in any group, you get you get brought up by your peers. Like they assess you. Well, you mm-hmm. say to them, I'm interested being a politician and they ask they size you up they ask you questions they get to know you a little bit and if you if you wash out they they don't they stop returning your phone calls but if you show some kind of potential Mm. they say all right if you're serious about this you got to do this this and this you got to talk to this guy you know we'll set you up with this guy maybe or you Mm. got you know call me if you need anything you're going to have to go to this person but it's like any other thing you know you got to get vetted by your peers Mm -hmm. or you know, I already have a giant platform like Trent did, mm-hmm. you know, and just break in. I mean, he literally just broke in. I don't think he was a Republican when he started. Wasn't he a Democrat or an independent was, or something? I think he was a Democrat at one point. Like he hobnobbed with the Clintons, right? I, or he just was, he's just himself. He's whatever. There was a vacancy in the Republican Party. That it works better yeah. for him and who he is and his brand. But mm-hmm. that's where he slotted in. You know, and mm-hmm. it's, I just can't believe, like, two images will stay with me with this Trump uh, campaign, this Trump administration, this Trump era. One is holding the Bible above the church after shooting all the Ups, yeah. protesters. After it, away the protesters violently, yeah. Yeah, and with, then now him. it's driving around the hospital was he has COVID-19. To wave at like supporters. Over. Yeah, oh. looking off, by the way. Looking like he's already lost weight. You know, and looking gray. Well, he doesn't have any makeup on, maybe. Oh. Um, that orange makeup that he uses, whatever <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm not, I'm being serious. I'm not. I'm not being <laughs> no, it's just funny. Makeup. It's just funny. Um, and more than just that compound stuff that they put so that the glare doesn't right. shine off. Stage up. makeup. It's more stage makeup. Thank you. It's more than that. Uh-huh. But you know, it's it's just we. I wonder, like, like you said, you know, Trump is just fitting into a role that allowed him to 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 elevate himself in the national stage onto the national stage. But I wonder if he could have aped. I wonder if his vicious, divisive rhetoric and attitude would have played for democratic voters like i wonder if he said you know black lives matter you know Mm. all cops i mean some of them are good but they're mostly rapists they're bringing crime these cops they're all corrupt we ought to defund the police i'm sick and tired of violence against our black brothers and sisters we should we should we should build a wall around every police precinct. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder <laughs> if his rhetoric, if his rhetoric, uh-huh. you know, uh, anyone who says the N-word should be shot. Uh-huh. I'm going to go one step further. Any college campus where there's a professor of questionable ethics, we nuke the city. You know what I mean? Like, I wonder if he had gone, you know, like anyone who, if you if you don't pronounce 72 gender pronouns, I'm going to uh-huh. have you arrested. You know, like, I wonder if, if, if Democratic voter or uh, not Democratic, but people uh, who vote for the Democratic Party, right? I wonder if the they have been taken by that rhetoric. I wonder. I don't know. I mean, so it's, it's probably, pretty vulgar. It's very vulgar, but you know, it's like why? Why does it? You know, why does it resonate so much with? And I, I don't want the easy answer like Republicans are are are, are you know pieces of shit. Uh-huh. I don't want. I don't want the, no. I I you know. 
I can't believe that I that I, that every member of the Republican Party, everybody who voted for Trump, is an abject racist. I can't. Maybe it's just it's just too clean. It's too easy. But it's like I wonder what is it about the Republican Party? What is it about the conservative movement? How did they allow this fucking clown to co-op party? Well, How part did they of it. Allow- Part of it is that he, because of the way he talks, makes him seem like that outsider candidate that everybody always tries to pretend to be, which he seemed to be more of than anybody else. Plus, his way of talking also, uh, like, mirrored the anger that a lot of people in America feel, right? Mm -hmm. I think that has something to do with it. People, like, people were getting uh, upset with PC culture, I guess, and they associated that with Democrats, and they don't. There, there's not there it seemed like there were a lot of and he also offered seemingly easy answers to things we'll put up a wall that'll stop the drugs that'll stop the violence that'll stop the immigrants the illegals coming in when these issues are actually much more complex than that you can't just be like this will solve all of that because part of the problem is like you have illegal immigrants or immigrants who who didn't go through the proper process working on your fields being a huge paying taxes being a huge part of your economy especially in california and other agricultural centers so you put up a wall divide them from their families what like you're that's not going to solve any problems that'll only exasperate issues that are already there you know like but it seems plausible it seems it seems like a solution that you just go, yeah, see, we'll just do that. That'll do it. Right. Possibly as a, a but there's obviously more to it than just that. I mean, he had a TV show platform. Remember, I think it was the Washington Post interviewed the people who made that show. And they. Apprentice? Uh, yeah, the apprentice. And that's not his real office, right? That's an all in a set. But so much of. What he wrote on is the image that was projected with him. You're fired. I think that's what he said. I've never seen the show behind that big oak desk with the fancy walls and things like that. Like it showed an image that represented power, presidential. It gave him credibility. Even before that show happened, he was a guy hawking like burgers from McDonald's and commercials and, you know, in the Home Alone 2 movie. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I just I still don't I still don't I guess I guess is it I mean the Democratic Party was taken in by Hillary Clinton Democratic voters people voted for the Democrat I mean Hillary Clinton is not you know and I, I just so I guess I guess getting hoodwinked by a presidential candidate is something that can uh, <laughs> a truly bipartisan phenomenon perhaps <laughs> but the difference uh, is Hillary Clinton is probably one of the most no she is the most successful woman in American history. She would have governed. She would have been. She would have been a duplicitous thief, and but she would have at least governed. Mm-hmm. I had this discussion with my mother of all people lately. You know, can you imagine if Hillary had gotten in? I'm like, well, we would have contained coronavirus. <laughs> yeah. No, we would have. 100 percent would have. If Obama was president, we would have. If most uh, anyone else was president. We probably most Aunt would Bush, have. George W. Bush yeah. would have contained it i think honest to god you know and i i long dude this is this is how crazy fucking america is i i wish bush was president i miss him he was republican i didn't vote for him but i miss him Mm. i think the iraq war was a was a terrible terrible costly blunder and so does most so does he (laughs) nowadays incidentally yeah uh which goes to show you that the man is in fact Capable of some introspection and capable mm-hmm. of, of admitting remorse. wrong yeah. remorse. He's more, he's, I could never have said this about him when he was president, but he's moral. There's something about him that I, I, I would, if I, if it's him and Bernie Sanders running, I'm not voting Bernie all day long, <laughs> but you know, if it's, if it's honestly, if it was George W. Bush Biden, I'd vote W. Bush. Really? I just, I just, huh. be, I would, I would, I absolutely would. I, I, the Democratic Party has revealed itself to be corrupt in a way I never would have suspected during the Obama years. 
how do we have we have Kamala Harris, we have a gay man, Pete Buttigieg, we have we have Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew motherfucking Yang, <laughs> Bernie Sanders, and we get Biden. Uh. Jersey Joe, the glad hander, who who because of advanced age and grief over his son has incipient dementia. I don't need to be told. I don't need to see a medical report. The man's brain is going soft. And that's just, first, it's the, it's the way of all life, number one. He's at that age. And number two, he, tremendous grief over the law, over the tragedies he's suffered late in life. Mm-hmm. Hunter Biden, I believe he's lost two wives to cancer, not one. I'm not. Oh wow! I believe he lost at least one wife to cancer, at least. And it's it's just how does your mind remain strong when when you had that kind of horrific tragedy, personal tragedy befalling? I'm not blaming Joe Biden, but it's he is not. I'm voting for Kamala Harris. That's what I'm doing. I'm voting for Kamala Harris and Biden. If he's with it, will at least attempt to negotiate with his Russian, with his Russian, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> with his Republican counterparts. I'm sorry. Do you know uh, something we don't, mean, Brett? No. Well, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, we are very close. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, um, all that to say is that we're living in very strange times here in America. Very strange times. They're very not good. Times indeed. No, no. Good. No, I, I, and I it's just... going to get a lot worse. It's going to get a lot worse. And it has to get a lot worse because if it doesn't, then we're just going to keep degenerating into nothing. Yeah. It has to get worse so we can confront it. It has to get a lot worse. When you start seeing bodies stacked up in the streets, like when you from not from COVID-19, but from fucking just, just paralyzing, episodic, uncoordinated, rage-filled violence. People who are just like, you know what? I, I fuck you. You took everything from me. Bang. Because there's a lot of guns in this country. It's not like it's not like Hong Kong where they're coming at you with improvised, you know, they're coming <laughs> at you with shots knives and colanders, yeah. or whatever. You know, this is America. There's a gun for every man, woman, and child up in <laughs> circulation, and then some. You know, and it's it's just you're gonna see, you're just gonna see. And I'm not, I'm 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 grinning because if you don't laugh, you're gonna cry. But it's it's just it's it, it's this it's it's. <laughs> you watch when these restaurants start closing down a lot more, and when the moratoriums are up on evictions, when people can finally get evicted who have not been paying rent since April. Uh, people who you know you got you got what. 60 million adults, whatever, without a job out there. And this, oh boy. Wait, aren't those $1,200 checks that that the Treasury and Mitch McConnell's like allow you to get? Or is that oh, going to no, go to no, do it? No, incidentally, that was very generous of them <laughs> in between subsidizing the airline industry's rapacious behavior. Mm. Airline well, industry, so uh, let me get this. We had 10 fat years. All right, we had 10 very record-setting years. What we did, you see, was quite brilliant. So we get bailed out, right, in 2009. What we do after that, right, we split up that bailout money between all the top executives. Very fine, very nice. Everyone had a good time on little St. James. It was a wonderful time. Keep that to yourself. Next thing we did, well, we want to at least show some kind of growth. We want to show that we're actually, you know, fixing the old leaky hull in the business model. So what we do is is we start packing in the peasants like sardines into the fuselage. We 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 make we make first class even more decadent spread out. You know, we got these giant lounge chairs you sit in. We're buying Moe Shando. You know, it's a great time for them to compensate. We're taking every Tom Dick and Harry, every sweaty fucking loser. We're packing them in like stale fish into a fucking can. You know what I'm saying? We just, we just, you know, we had three seats before. Now we have four. What's the problem? You're only going, you're only on the plane for six hours. Who cares? You're fine. Excuse so me, So what sir. do we do? Excuse me, sir. Do we invest? It's funny. Do we invest all this extra money? 
No, we shove it up our asses and up our noses. We have a great time with the money. Now COVID happens. Ten fat years. Ten fat years we made some of the tune of $1.2 trillion in profits as an industry. Where's all that money gone? I don't know. We need $30 billion more, though. And we're still going to lay off over 28,000 employees. Now, how's that? How do you like that? Shove that right up your ass, American public. What are you going to do? You're going to shut us down? <laughs> Good fucking luck. How Good are you going to get to Cabo? Yeah, how are you going to get to <laughs> Good luck getting. Good luck getting to fucking Costa Maya. You fucking. Good luck. Good luck getting to Miami. You can have a super spreader situation down there. <laughs> That unregulated hellhole. Mm. <laughs> See, you know, it's again, it's it's. I, I, I'm in. I kid, but I really don't. No, I, <laughs> I kid, but I'm. I love how you tried to ask true. a question like a journalist. I, and I just steamrolled. I didn't mean. To, I'm sorry. No, no. Yeah, I, I see that you didn't want me to play along. I get that. Oh, am I interested in a fucking question from the peanut gallery? I'm beyond <laughs> scrutiny. Take your question and go, uh, go, go, sit and coach for all I care. <laughs> Uh, so. It's that time, my bud, my my mm. friend. It's time to get into boozing through the New Yorker. You ready to to strike a pose very quickly? I Anna. am. Dul, set. Make a point. Make a point. <laughs> Starting off this week, boozing through it. Fuck it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So, we have an interesting story today, and I'm, I'm going to sound negative about it probably in my precinct, but I actually don't mean to be. I, wanna, I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. So, young amateur writers tend to make the same mistakes. In every writing class, there's a student who writes about a character who gets bamboozled to play Russian roulette, a female seduces her teacher, and a character who has snappy dialogue with a therapist. The reason the first two are popular is that there is instant conflict and stakes to rise. In roulette, death is on the table. In the set with the teacher, there are power dynamics to play with. In the situation with the therapist, however, it is because writers think it is interesting. It usually isn't. It's usually a cheap ploy to show that the character's distress and to dole out exposition quickly and easily. Susan Choi is not an amateur writer. She's won the Penn Faulkner Award, the Asian American Literary Award, and teaches creative writing at Yale University, her alma mater. But in her story, The Flashlight, oh no, in her story, Flashlight, the bulk of the action takes place in a therapy session. Hyper-articulate 10-year-old Louisa is brought to the child therapist's office where she is in a fight with Jerry Brickner to not give him what he wants, which is for her to talk about the death of her father. The scene does not feel as if it were written by amateur, but the story is a mess. At least I think so, and I think that's interesting. I don't understand why some of the choices that uh, Susan made, but they are interesting. The story starts off in present tense, with Louisa walking the breakwater with her overly cautious father on the night he drowns, before shifting to past tense at at least a year later while she's lying in bed now living with her wheelchair-bound sick mother in the Los Angeles home of an aunt she never knew she had before. In an interview with The New Yorker about the story, Susan Choi said she plays with how much to leave out about her character's backstories. She also said she's been wrestling with this material for years, trying to figure out what it wants to be. On this episode of Boozing Through the New Yorker, the dark, like a snake slid onto her chest, organizing its weight into neatly stacked coils that might bury her, crush her if she didn't leap out of bed just in time, and with deft skill, silently open, reopen the door. Susan Choi's flashlight. What do you think of it? Well, it's interesting that the author admits she didn't know what to do with it, because I think she still doesn't. I, I, I don't. I, I think it's it's but again I never I never want to fault people for trying I never no. fault for trying and then of course when you get 
when you get when it's published and when it's out there, certainly there's a, there's a degree of of success that you've attained. But it seemed like it seemed like she was setting the odds against her. Again, we have a we have a short story where the protagonist is intensely unlikable, and the story eventually doesn't even like the character either. Yeah, it's interesting, right? <laughs> the story doesn't like this poor little girl who <laughs> whose mother is sick with. It sounds like muscular dystrophy because she's not paralyzed. She gets out of the wheelchair at the very right. end of the story, but she's got some kind of wasting illness. Uh, so that's horrible enough. But then you you're you blame yourself for your father's death. Mm-hmm. You know, you're like, Dad, come out, come out to the jetty. No, no, I don't want. Dad, come out to the jetty. I don't. I can't swim. Come out to the jetty. <sighs> All right. And the one time he does, he fucking <laughs> dies. The poor bastard, you know. Uh-huh. And it, so you have this intensely sympathetic. It's this little, she's precocious. She's smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she's, she's suffering through all this personal tragedy and dislocation. She's moving around the world. But somehow she's, uh, somehow I, I find myself hoping for worse things to happen to her. I'm like, can this little oh, really? bitch die already? <laughs> Oh, she's such a fucking jerk. Yeah. And it's 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 fine. It's mm-hmm. fine that she's a jerk, but it's interesting that the story doesn't disabuse me of that notion. Yeah. Like, look at you, reader. What are you doing? Are you judging a 10-year-old girl? Mm-hmm. The story's like, yeah, let's judge her. The tone yeah. is like, yeah, she is a little bitch. She is a little fucking just like, whoa. I didn't quite know what to make of that. Like you have you have a you know like you said in your in your in your in your pracy you have an articulate hyper articulate as you put it uh young girl and we want to feel sympathetic like oh my god your father died and your mom but she 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 just despises her mom she hopes trap doors open underneath her mom i like the way that Hinging, yeah, yeah hinging, hinging open. Hinging open below like this, yeah. this immediate, you know, uh-huh. now down the down the mother goes. Hoping that this happens to her mother. And not even like you pointed out at the beginning of the story when the father's still alive, it's in the present tense, this the Which, narration. I didn't understand she why. Despises her mother even then. Oh, I don't yeah. know why either. I don't know why uh, either. I, I kept thinking about where the story I, I do this with a lot of things, but I keep like because she talks in that New Yorker article about not giving a much backstory, right? Like she plays with how much backstory to give. And okay, I she doesn't thinking, know what the story's why about. It, yeah, why doesn't it start? And like I said, okay, why don't we cut out the part of her father dying? Because we don't actually see him die. It's just them walking on the jetty. We can. That doesn't really give us too much, except for the fact that she already doesn't like her mother. Her mother's already sick then. Already doesn't like her mom. Right. You know. And then we have the bedroom scene where she doesn't like the light, uh, where she doesn't like the darkness, but she punishes her mom, who so apparently wants to like hug her and touch her and read her bedtime stories, but she denies her. And then we get to the therapy scene. And I thought maybe we could just have that therapy, therapy scene as, all, as the whole story. Do we need those other two sections as much? Right. Because... Right. It it just seemed a little like I said it's a it's kind of a mess because of the switching train the switching uh, tense and then there's weird things going on with the narration like the narrator doesn't know everything like no one was there to know the last line that her father said to her but knows a lot more about other characters and what they're thinking and what they want so they're right they're, yeah I had to remind myself a few times that the little girl wasn't narrating the story because yeah. the narrator, you know, the things were being said that the little girl couldn't possibly know. Uh-huh. No, but yeah. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not the little girl narrating. It's a narrator who's perched on the shoulder as it were of the little mm. girl. But um, yeah, it was confusing about what the narrator knew and what the narrator didn't know, which is another kind of, which again, I mean, there's a, I don't know the writer from Adam, um, but by her own admission, apparently in an interview, she didn't quite know what to do with the story. And I'm glad that you told me that because in in beer, there's a phenomena where 
you Kolsch is a is a is a remarkable beer style um, because it is about as naked a beer as you can get. It's it's so plain, right? Oh, that, that it's a plain beer. Like it's it's about it's moderately uh, alcohol. It's about five percent typically. Um, the idea is that it's refreshing. Right. The idea about this says a little bit of alcohol. It's refreshing. It's clean. It's crisp. It's it's like the cacio e pepe of of beer like you just have this stripped down naked beer mm. and you enjoy it now as a brewer right if you're brewing this beer it's extremely challenging and rewarding because a you get kudos from your peers if you pull it off but b it's like you know your brew system is solid if you can produce this beer without any off flavors without any kind of sourness or any kind of cardboardiness or any any of the any off flavor is going to show up because there's nothing for the off flavor to mingle with. It's just naked. It's just out in the open because mm. there's nothing else going on with the beer. It's very plain, right? So when you encounter a dark Kolsch, like a, a roasted malt, like a roasted Kolsch or a dry hop Kolsch or something like that, Alarm bells go off. You're like, all right, why choose to brew a naked style and then put ornaments on it? Right. What are you hiding? What are you hiding? Are you hiding off flavors? You know, that's that's the thing. That's why, you know, and uh, the story has these weird clunky jumps and these these and i and i'm one like these these shifts in perspective these jarring shifts, and i'm wondering if it's just to cover the fact that the story doesn't mean anything the I'm story has too i'm I... wondering like why are we going to why are we going to follow a little girl who is profoundly unlikable understandably so mm -hmm. and then the story itself turns its back on her which is so amazing did you were you just as jarred as I was by the last line? I thought it was it was I couldn't believe it. It's I love that last line. Like I love the way that she's left in the dark. That's the way yeah. it ends. It's like her mother you just stole says, this. I'm done oh, with you. I got to apologize now. You actually did steal this flashlight. Yeah. And the mother, the mother who's just freakishly gotten out of the chair in the dark. Like Left you're like Whoa! across the space is how it's written, I believe. Yeah. This. Yeah, and it's like whoa. So now the mother gets back in the wheelchair with the aunt, and mm. the mother rolls out the aunt, and they slam the door. Somebody slams the door, leaving her in the dark. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, the it's, story itself doesn't want anything to do with her at the end. It's just it's, like, it's really good. I learned. I think I learned something from that actually. That scene, you know, how to handle an ending of a of a story like that. Like it's it's such a great ending but we have i i there's a lot of things in the story that i generally don't like i don't like hyper precocious or hyper articulate kids and usually mm. i don't like something to think about it yeah you know, I, I, think. like yeah, harold may have learned how to read before he could learn how to speak but i don't care like mm. it's just so rare like there might actually be kids out there who are that perspicacious and that articulate but I don't care. I don't make them the subject of a story. Yeah, it's I don't. Kind of, it seems it's cheating to me. Cheating, right? like, like, like always having a superhero as a protagonist. Yeah, know, and then it's also got the therapist, which I also don't particularly like in stories. Like I was saying, it seems like a cheap way to. It, it's it's the equivalent to having a character vomit, you know, after seeing something horrible or whatever. It's a way. It's a quick way of showing something of getting information out and like the vomit is like having like show them that they're overcome with emotion or what they're seeing is horrible so they vomit as opposed to trying to find a more complex way to to show those emotions and not that they're all the time wrong right i'm not saying never but right it's it's like i that. thought they're back and forth the back and forth between um brickner mm -hmm. dr brick and louisa the little girl 
that was the highlight of the story for me. I thought I thought it was very well done. Me too. Very well done. Again, I'm not saying that uh, Susan Che is a bad writer. Never, not at all. It's just okay. It's okay to be stuck with the story. It's totally okay to not know what the fuck to do with it. You know, in a way, she, it, this is the one thing that troubled me about the story. It seemed too obviously autobiographical. Like for the story to be in, confirmed in this interview, for the story to be sticking with her that for that long, it's about her. She doesn't know what to think of herself. And this is this is a main reason why I don't like learning author biographies. I don't mm. want because I don't want it to get because when I learn the details, it's like, oh, shit, is this why I wanted it to be magical? I want the story to just Resist. come at me as itself. Yeah, I don't want to think that Susan Che uh, was this precocious, soon to be Yale student you know, uh, succeeding in a very competitive field, but, 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 you know, looks at herself kind of as this little bitch in a way who did, who was cruel to her mother. And you know what I mean? Like I never, her mother's probably still alive. Who knows? But the fact that she psychologically is identifying with Louisa, I just didn't want to know that. Cause again, what, there's other explanations and I'm open to maybe, maybe, maybe this is a, a niece of hers. Or a sister of hers. Right. This Louisa character, though, is somebody very dear to her, whether it's herself or somebody close, and she doesn't know what to make of it, doesn't know what to do with it. But I just thought it was such an interesting choice to 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 essentially reject the character. Like she there's something ornery about Louisa that predates the tragedy that mm -hmm. she witnessed. But to to reject the character kind of makes me think, especially when reading this story, when I'm not sure what she's really trying to say. Mm -hmm. I go, why? Like, I don't. I want to understand what, why she wrote you it. Get, you got to get it out. She just has. She had to get she, it out. She, she said yeah. in the interview that it, it may become something longer, which. Right, another fragment in the New Yorker. <laughs> 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 no, but I, I think it's interesting that the New Yorker published this, even though it doesn't like it's not like I think that is an interesting choice to do to, to publish it, you know, as opposed to like the, the Kafka piece or some of the other stories that are excerpts from novels. I think this is a much more interesting piece to talk about, to discuss from a, like a process point of view, you know, mm -hmm. because if because uh, I look at it and I go, maybe maybe that's just my style or maybe the when what I'm what I'm working with, I would have cut it off. I would have just started right because the way it starts is um, uh, when with the therapist scene is uh, I was supposed to, she was supposed to go to school today, but she, uh, she was pulled out early this morning to go to the therapy's office. And that seems like a pretty decent way to start. It's got the now it's got the difference, the change. And it's, it has a lot of that information that we got from the other parts like uh, the death of the father and the way they trickled in is a lot more natural, I thought, or a lot more even than just saying, here's this scene where the father dies. Here's that scene where she's in bed and we find out that she. I like that. And I, I totally agree with you. The story mm -hmm. could have started the way you just suggested, mm -hmm. but in the movie Unforgiven, the movie starts with this very subdued, uh, uh, guitar music very subdued acoustic guitar music and it's sad and it's just it's just like a like a like a silhouette of a homestead and a man digging a grave it's all silhouetted against this orange sky it's probably sunset mm. and it just shows you know and like almost like uh, like a title like 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 lettering that rises up i, f I don't know what that's called it tells the backstory about right. the, the major character, William Money, played by Clint Eastwood. And you're like, why? And then, then the main action shifts to the town of Big Whiskey, where most of the action story takes place. You're like, well, why, why start it that way? Why start it with this, you know, this, this scene of a man burying his wife? Mm. Well, because the story is about that. 
the story is about the monster named William Money mm. and how when his wife died, his wife, quote, cured him of wickedness. This remorseless, violent, drunken maniac who even other violent, drunken maniacs were afraid of and, and never slept with their eyes closed around him was actually brought to a level of humanity he hadn't occupied in years by love for a good woman. Mm. And when that good woman died, it left him naked to the influences of the frontier, bounty hunting, murder, etc. And he goes back, he relapses back into a monster, right? So there's this thing where you... He assumes the identity he probably never should have, you know, he assumes the identity that is right to him, his proper identity. Maybe in this story, uh, Flashlight by Susan Che, I mean, that's the, the thing which cements Louisa in fear of the dark, kleptomania, these mm. power games she plays with adults. It's because she lost her compass. She lost her father. You know, and it's like that's the scene. She never, she never really seemed to care for her mother. But she did yeah. seem to care for her father. She did actually seem to care for him a little yeah, bit. Yeah, there's a line in it that Even says that she's holding his hand for him or something like that. Like, that it's unnecessary to hold her hand. but she, And she says something for the sake of her father, not for her own sake. Because he... He's he's gentle. He actually seems so gentle that he's overcautious, and so it's to a to a psychologically damaging degree. I mean, you don't let your you don't let your daughter eat anything unless you poke through it with a, a fork to see if there's glass. I know, yeah. you know, and and you 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 know you helicopter parent to an obscene degree, mm -hmm. and yet you're the cherished figure. And how badly must she feel betrayed by her mother that she despises her mother this much for being sick, for not having any sympathy for her mother at all for being sick. Do you no think sympathy she's actually sick? The mother? Yeah. Yes, that, I do. Yeah, I think so too. But that was a question I they do. asked Susan in the article, in the interview. Is she actually mm -hmm. sick? And she said, well, that she said, she, I guess it was a typed interview because like she responded by emails because she's like, that is the question I wanted you to ask yourself. Is she sick? Hmm. Is actually how she ends the question. Answer. Hmm. And, and it's so boring. That's it's so little, boring. It's a little. It's yeah. So yeah. I'm and wagering. You, I'm wagering Susan Chase in her 40s or 50s when that kind of postmodernist horse shit was in vogue. There, and she was writing. It's just it's I don't find that to be particularly interesting. There. There is something interesting about the time it's set in. Like, it's in a very specific time, which is like the late 1970s. And the only way we know that is because of the movies they discuss. Mm. Oh, oh, um, well, I thought the third that kind. very well. The idea that Richard Dreyfus, this movie, the closing out of this movie, he leaves his family. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's interesting. He leaves his family. And that's what. The father does mm. not against against his will. Mm. He leaves the family. I've He's never swept seen away. it. Same thing yeah, with Star Richard, Wars, right? Star Wars. That was I am your father. Yeah. There, there's the absence of a father figure in that, too. I guess I don't know. I haven't seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I think the I think the uh, the child psychologist there, Doctor Brickner, is asking about Star Wars to. To, to, to contrast, mm. you know, this little girl initially says, you know, that close encounters of the third kind, close encounters of the third kind scared her. Right. And she backtracks when he kind of latches on to that. She's like, no, nah, it didn't scare me. Aliens aren't scary. It was kind of boring, blah, blah, blah. Like a Halloween. Go, scary like Halloween. Yeah, scary mm. Halloween, right? You like Star Wars? No, I don't like that. Whatever. Mm. Why do you like this? Do you like sci-fi movies? No, it's not. Close Encounters of the Third Kind is not a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. He finally gets to the point where it's like, you know, everyone thought this guy was the father. 
figure in the film was was crazy building this little mud tower and shit and then you know this normal life mm. that the family had is suddenly turned on its head it's interesting so you that you mentioned that like about how the story kind of gives up on her because it kind of feels like the psychologist or the psychiatrist whichever one he is gives up on her too go play with the toys but of course he's writing notes he's doing his work and stuff like that so it might not be that but it's it's kind of the same i i think the writer gave us a clue as to what the story could mean possibly mm. the main meaning of it i'm just thinking of this right now and you reminded me of it it's a line that occurs around the middle of the story and it's when the young protagonist, Louisa, realizes or acknowledges that no adult really listens. It's Yeah, it's at the start of the psychiatrist. No one really listens. No one really gives a fuck. Mm-hmm. No one really cares. This is a profoundly... People, people care when it suits them, right? And her father who seemed to care for its own sake is gone. And the mother, for some reason, I'm not quite sure what it is, but Louisa rejects her mother's concern, rejects her aunt's concern. But the message is that no one, well, the message is that Louisa thinks no one really listens. I think that's important. Mm. Louisa believes that no one's really on her team. And the question is, I think that the what what happens to a child who who thinks that way? And what do we do with a child who doesn't seem to have any redeeming characteristics? Is she an ultimate object of like can we can we pity her even though she's full of contumely? And and for all of her rhetoric, for all of her uh, precocious intellect, she's, you know, she doesn't know herself, which is fine. She's 10. Mm. Why should the narrative punish her? I don't understand. Like, why should she be an unsympathetic figure? I don't get that. I really don't get that, you know, and it's like, you know, normally, why wouldn't we pity a little girl whose mother is suffering from an illness and whose father is dead and she witnessed it, she witnessed it, and she's so much in shock that the flashlight, the sound of the flashlight dropping is one on sand, Mm -hmm. which at first I thought was, you know, they're talking about earthquakes and, you know, She's out on a breakwater. I thought maybe, you know, they were about to get swept away by a tsunami or something. That You know, how, how water pulls out mm. first the current, and then yeah. rushes back in. But no, she wouldn't have survived that. So that's not the good answer. It's just that she 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 came back online consciousness-wise yeah. after her father was already swept away, you know. And that's why the flashlight drops on the sand and not in the water. And here's the thing. Here's a really terrifying thing. Her father was holding the flashlight. Now she is. What the hell happened? What horror mm. transpired that she couldn't even remember it? You know, was she holding her father's hand? Uh. Did he make her take the flashlight? Did he drop the flashlight when he fell in? If so, how did she get it? No, may have dropped it on the breakwater as opposed to breakwater. This slippery lichen-covered yeah, concrete. So, yeah. you know, I don't really imagine that. Maybe she asked to hold it. Maybe. Because you know, know. kids do that. Can I have that, Dad? Dad, I have a kid that does that, so I understand being anything in my hands. Right. Did she kill him? I was wondering that too. Did she fucking kill him? Is she just a bad egg? Or kill him by accident. 
like not to purposely to kill him, but to push him, right? Like just to, kids do. Hey, Dad, are you sure you can't swim? Ooh. Yeah. Uh. yeah. Because she's been in that water all the time, it says. She swims in that all every day. Well, well, she um, she clearly blames herself for his death. But kids do that. That's child yeah. psychology. One. Kids mm-hmm. blame themselves for all manner of adult vicissitudes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for adult problems. Parents breaking abuse. up. Hmm? Yeah. I blame myself for my own abuse to this day. I think I deserved it. That, you know, I am a coward. I am a pussy. I am a wimp. Mm. You know, those lessons are, I can't ever divest myself of that. I carry that around every single day. You know, and it's just, it's just because I was a child when I was abused. I was a very small child and I didn't have the, the mental, the experience to be able to say, like today, if somebody tried to systematically torture me and abuse me the way my father did, I'd say, go piss up the end of a rope, you cocksucker. Like, I'd fight him. All right? You know, I don't have that defiance. As a kid, you just take it. Right. I read so that. for Louisa, Louisa she, she lost her father. She blames herself for him dying. I don't remember where I read this, but I read in the last week that when children are, you know, verbally abused, uh, they don't have uh, the sense of self built up yet, so they believe it is their fault that they it, deserve it. When you hit a child, yep. Mm. Children are scouring daily life for clues as to who they are and how to behave. And if you give them violence and anger, they're that's they're like that's they're you're programming them. Have you ever written about a, a kid before? A child? A protagonist? A kid? Yeah. No. It's too hard. Mm. Too hard. So, I mean, I've, I've, had, I've had kids in stories before. Yeah. But they've never been the protagonist. They've never been the focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Very I, hard. I mean, I can yeah. understand why this is beguiled. Uh, Susan Che. I can I can totally sympathize. It's hard. How to it's write so dialogue hard. for a kid that sounds like a kid is saying it. Right. You know, that's right. how do how, how do you to... how do you engross readers who have a billion potential things they could read with a kid? <laughs> that's a question of the marketplace, isn't it? Like how do you <laughs> We had this strange cat and mouse with the psychiatrist, I suppose, and uh, or the flashlight. And of course, what do we? What do we? It's it's just it's all, it's amazing that you have this very articulate child whose fears are very childish. They're very puerile. We didn't even talk about the the dollhouse. That no, was such didn't. a big part of the story. Like, there's all these weird. There's all these items in the st- in the piece. That I'm not sure if they, I remember like when when I write a first draft, I tend to pollute it with tons of stuff that afterwards yeah. I have to strip it back from because it's just like obscuring the fact that I, uh, they're there to like obscure the fact that I don't know what I'm writing about yet. Right, right. And, and like there's three things in particular that I think of. One is the flashlight, which is obviously important. Second is the dollhouse. And the third are like her clothes that she talks about. Mm-hmm. The clothes is probably the, uh, something that is closer to being finished because she's talking about she doesn't feel like she is herself in jeans and in these clothes. That has to do with identity. The dollhouse, I mean, it made such a little impact on us that we didn't even think talk about it. Yeah. One thing I remember about the dollhouse is how she felt grieved. She felt aggrieved and she felt uh, sad, as it were, almost for her father, who was laboring so hard to build something ugly she didn't want. Yeah. And But then she, as it were, through the example of her mother, who taught her how, to, how she could contribute to it. Mm-hmm. You know, here, take this postage stamp and surround it with cardboard. Now it looks like a painting. Mm-hmm. This tiny little life in miniature, even though it's homely, you made it. Your mm-hmm. father made it. 
I had made it. It's a family thing. We all did it together. That's and when we went point. next, you know, it's just this thing where the dollhouse, you, it's, it's a confirmation of family, I think, in the sense in that they all had a hand to play in it. Uh-huh. Flashlight, I think, it's like this is this is your father. Yeah. This is what you hold on to. This the is what in the darkness. This is what this is yes, your father's the light in the darkness. And you lost it. You lost your father. You lost the flashlight. It's gone. This tide swept it away. So you steal it. Mm. You steal it to feel obviously people compulsive thieves do it to feel power and to outwit people who are trying to catch them and that's that's a psychological truism going back 40 years so we know why she's stealing things she's stealing things to get over on people but the flashlight is especially poignant theft because it's you first of all you're stealing light okay Mm. for me it's whatever who cares (laughs) but you're also doing you're also through this object you're able to as it were rescue your father have him have this flashlight with you at night because mm. the night is what really you know, it's, it's, it's night's scary darkness is scary you know mm. we're you know in the west you know in westernized countries we all sleep alone no culture has a fucking teddy bear because uh, kids you're stepping on kids <laughs> like Way human beings used to live, kids were just part. Kids, kids and adults are just part of the same thing happening. Yeah, childhood, childhood a, is a new invention. Childhood is a new thing. Well, not necessarily, but you know, right. constituted as your own room, your mm. own. Well, you know, yeah. I read a book a long time ago session. that said it was like when you hit ten, you have to go to work. Right, like the idea of childhood as we know it now, where there's like specific clothes, specific toys, specific things just for kids, is yes, more, yes, yeah. right, mm. much more. And the idea that you have a you have these stuffed animals and things to keep you company in the dark. I mean, that's no other culture really has that, except for Westernized ones. Mm. You know, and it's this strange thing where yes, you you're alone in the dark, and you're missing your father, and you're missing your mother in a way. And you have this flashlight, and there it is. And they take that from you, too. But you fully deserve to have it taken from you. But then no one, you're not willing to be helped. It's a, it's a horrible find that this young character is in. I feel terrible. I felt, I felt awful <laughs> reading this story. Because I want to like her. I want to, yeah. she's a victim. Yeah. You know, in a way, she's a victim, but she's a, she's a victim. It's like I, I I had flashbacks of being a teacher with kids who just would not let you help them. Like they would they would not let their lives were so horrible. I had this one kid, his father was a his his mother was a madam, in a shit bum brothel, in that god awful port district where I used to teach at the end Yongdam, mm. and uh, you know there was this corrupt street near Tapdong where. His mother had a, a a nickel and dime brothel, and his father was a John, who was long gone. Right, he might have even been married to somebody else. Who knows? So he had no father, and his mother was an alcoholic, you know, madam. And you just couldn't. Mm-hmm. He was he was he was as profound a victim as you can find, and he was the worst rotten sack of shit human you would ask for. Like it was just it was. The ugliness of his environment had seeped into his soul to such a degree that there was nothing you could do. It would have taken concerted effort by a devoted team of specialists just to maybe get this kid to vote. Like he was, his name was Kim Guhyun. Never forget it. And I just felt awful. Like how do you, how do you get this kid to not? organize his dumber cohorts into brutalizing this kid who wears glasses like he was a bully and uh, i hated him and i felt sorry for him all at once because mm-hmm. trouble because of how he was becoming a monster and he was only 13 but he was already the ringleader of this small little posse that used to terrorize this poor kid who just 
because he was because he was a little chubby. He had glasses. He was very sweet. So he was an easy mark. It's fucking textbook, you know. Oh, like, uh, dude! I watched it play in front of my eyes. I watched, I watched the very reason why we should all be extinct happen right in front of my eyes, like this this horrendous cyclical ugliness, like a child born into lovelessness, into a brutal world with very little options. Right in Tapdong, in Jeju, or in the nineties when this kid was born, and he, this kid's abused, doesn't have a father, gets probably gets picked on and teased for that, whatever. Now he becomes this brutal, snide, ironic, you know, nothing warm about him. He becomes he becomes a knife blade, like this kid becomes the blade of a knife. You grip it. Mm. And you get cut. Yeah. You look at it from the outside, it's shiny, it's it's of a piece. You try to get close to it, it stabs you. Okay. And then now he's spreading, he was spreading pain around him. And you know, and it's it's like this little girl in the character, Luis, is profoundly a victim, you know. And, but that frustration, I felt reading it that she couldn't, she didn't seem to be able to be reached, Mm -hmm. you know, no, no, they were trying to, but no attempt was good enough for her. I don't know. It's a tough story to read, man, but it was good. Ultimately, right? Good Good conversation. We got stuff from it. I learned from it, I think. Um, Yeah. And that's about all the time we have for today. I'm boozing. Or this week on Boozing. Next week, we're going to be looking at Switzerland by Nicole Krauss. Switzerland right. by Nicole Krauss. And um, I'm, you were you making headway on this? Yeah, I, got, I got mine. It was, I have mine over there. It was uh, printed in 94. I have a 1994 version. Uh, of uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm looking forward to talking to this with you. Start. What do you think? Two weeks? Not this week? Not the next episode, but the episode after that? Have, uh, yeah, I think it haven't done two weeks. Sure, awesome. Let's let's we'll gun it for then. Um, if you haven't liked us and you know given us rosy five star reviews, please do so. Five on, stars, please. Five stars, please give it to us. Give it to us all of your stars. Um, and until next time, I'm Daryl. He's Brett. Together we are boozing, even though we don't really booze anymore. But that's a t- discussion for another time. Keep scribbling. <laughs>